Well, today we're going to talk about culture. And how many of you would, uh, would agree that uh, our culture today seems to be uh, in the seems to be declining. Like, like from a biblical standpoint, it seems to be getting worse. Would we agree with that? Well, I would argue that this is not anything new. That, that this has been going on since the beginning of time. I want to read to you the, the theme verse. It's, this will be the last time uh, that I use this uh, for a while because you've heard it every week. And it's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. Timothy, you are God's man, so run from all of these errors. Instead, chase after true holiness, justice, faithfulness, love, hope, and tender humility. Fight with faith for the winner's prize. Lay your hands upon eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession before the multitude of witnesses. I want to take a look at fighting for our culture. I'm going to come from a perspective that uh, at first might feel a little clunky to you. It might feel a little bit different in the sense that we're going to take a look and identify how did we end up here? Like, what, we're going to identify the problem. Where, where did, how did we get to this place? And then I want us to kind of circle back and I, I want us to uh, take a look at the solution. Nothing about our culture is a surprise, It's not. In fact, Paul defined our current cultural situation 2,000 years ago. I mean, he knew this. You know why he knew it? Because they were experiencing it. They they had the the same uh, kind of uh, culture that rejects God even then. So we have these periods in American history uh, the leaders of the, the Great Awakening, right? The George Whitfield, uh, Jonathan Edwards. We have the, this Great Awakening that takes place. And their sole purpose of these two preachers were to get people back into relationship with God. To, to recognize that uh, they, they were, what their whole goal was, was to help people recognize and convince people that the power of God was in their hands, not in the church's hands. That it wasn't just in the church that uh, would change the world, but it was when people had relationship with God and they walked out of the church building and into the streets. The late 60s marked one of, really one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. Uh, There were anti-war protests, they uh, reached such a kind of this fever pitch, if you will, uh, so much so that it was almost warlike uh, that in, uh, I think it was in the uh, 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, it just was this huge confrontation. And, and yet there was all of this uncertainty, there was all of this angst that was taking place in the 60s. And out of the 60s, though, came one of the most enduring legacies of Christianity, and that is known as the Jesus People Movement. The Jesus Movement. Through our history, we keep repeating ourselves where we find, we find ourselves getting very comfortable and very complacent as Christians, as Christ followers in the midst of our culture, and oftentimes it takes a, a great awakening. Oftentimes it takes a Jesus people movement. 
where we stop hoping and believing that somehow all of culture, all of the world is going to walk through the doors of the church and instead having such a great revival in our hearts and our relationship with God that we take the message of Jesus to the world. Let's take a look at what Paul warned us about. This, by the way, is uh, really one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. Uh, In some places, to read this chapter uh, is considered a hate crime and could potentially get you thrown into jail. We're not quite there yet in America, thank God. Uh, But this is a pretty controversial chapter. It starts in uh, chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. This is Paul writing this. And I want you to just hear the similarities of what's taking place today. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them. I want to just pause for a second because I think when people read that, they immediately equate this to like um, natural disasters, 9-11, like all these big things that, are, uh, that people will say, see, if we were just living our life right, God wouldn't bring that on us, right? Oh, yeah, I understand why there's you know, hurricanes in New Orleans, you know, or whatever. And, and there's, there's like this mentality that, that God, no, I would argue that God has really poured out all of his wrath at the cross. All of his wrath was satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. So this isn't, we're not saying that he, uh, he has caused pain as much as we're just saying he's taken his hands off. That if you're going to live your life this way, this is how he's just going to be like, okay, well, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences of this. So it says, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with, with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And everybody said, Amen. Sounds super familiar, right? I mean, this, this, I'm going to keep reading, and it's going to make you uncomfortable because what I'm about to read is, is very current stuff. It's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires in verse 26. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. I love that gossip is listed in the midst of some pretty uh, interesting things. But it's just a reminder to us that we're not shaming people based upon the level at which we in our culture think sin is. Sin is sin. And it's as damaging to the gossip as it is to the adulterer. 
They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. Break their promises. They are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them. The reason I read this to you is because this is really what progressive thinking is in our society today. This is where it's gotten us. We have ended up really buying into a new normal, a new reality that says that that everything that the world has to offer is okay, and we as the church really need to begin to adjust our normal to theirs. So what has really happened is if we, we've really allowed the church, or excuse me, the culture to creep into the church. And if you follow the world's way, you will get the world's results. And I don't think that there's anyone, not even, not even unbelievers who are really happy with the way that the world is going. I know that there's evil in this world, and I recognize that there are people who want to steer our culture and our world in a certain direction, but at the end of the day, we know that it is not producing the kinds of results that we're hoping to see in life. It's because we've abandoned God's truth, we've abandoned his ways, and we call it old-fashioned. We call it antiquated. We call it archaic, and, and we say, Well, that's just the way things used to be. And in reality, our God never changes. His ways never change. His ways still work. But I want us to identify just a few things of how we got here. And and the first is this, is that we've really given up on God's wisdom and settled for the world's ways. We did it on the basis that we know better, that we're smarter, that we have evolved in our intellect. And so now we are in a place in which we know better than what the scriptures could possibly ever know. The key to changing culture isn't to lower the standard, it's actually to raise the standard. If you look at Jesus as he came to this earth, he came and he completely raised the standard. It's interesting that in today's culture, you will find people who are, um, who are Jesus people. Even if they don't go to church, even if they, they aren't believers, they haven't surrendered their life to Christ, you will find people who are like, well, what about that Jesus guy? He was super loving. He went to the prostitutes. He went to the, like, I like that guy. If I could get that guy, that would be great. But what they don't realize is that when Jesus came, he didn't dumb it down. He wasn't just loving Jesus that ignored the truth. No, he cared about the truth. And in fact, he had a group of people that were surrounding him, and and he's teaching them about the law. And he says to them, he says, you know, it's written that you should not commit, and it's almost as though the group just knew what he was going to say. And they're all like, adultery. Yeah, that's right. You shouldn't commit adultery. That was was where the bar was. It was you shouldn't commit adultery. And then he goes on and says, but what I would tell you is that if you've ever looked at a woman who's not your wife lustfully, you have committed adultery. And all the group is like, I don't know about that. I, I I, I don't think that's right. Right? They're like, 
Uh, he just, in one fell swoop, made everybody in, in, that was listening adulterers. Right? I mean, they, to, their minds are, are being blown. He raised the bar. Now, he does it without shame, without condemnation. He does it in a way that says, but I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to take care of that for you. Romans 12.2 says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. The second thing that we've done is we've really followed our feelings instead of our faith. Somewhere along the line, someone convinced us that our feelings could be trusted. They cannot. They cannot. They can't be trusted. It's okay to have feelings, of course. It's okay to even, I mean, it's okay to experience temptation. I've heard people say, well, you're not a good Christian if, if you're being tempted. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. Actually, there is temptation in our life. It's okay to even be tempted by sin, but, but those feelings do, do not automatically make them right. Am I going to agree with what the Bible has to say, or am I going to trust my feelings? If we've been given a foundation of truth, am I going to trust that, or am I going to trust my feelings that, depending on, uh, on the day, could be somewhere here, somewhere here, and everywhere in the middle? Romans 8, 6 says, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And the third one is this, is that we trusted ourselves more than we trusted God. And this have really could have been the only point this morning, is that who or what are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the, the new norm of the current culture, or are we going to actually begin to trust in the Word of God? Are we going to trust that His ways are better than my ways? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So what do we do? How do we shift this? Because I think that there is something inside of us that really is not okay with the direction our culture is going. And I would just make an argument that the way that our culture is going is our fault. It's our fault. I'm not saying it's your fault, but I am saying it's our fault. And you're in the room, so. Uh, <laughs> it's our fault. It's the church's fault. The church has been irrelevant. The church has not been doing what it's been called to do. Instead of the church impacting and influencing the culture, we've allowed the culture to impact and influence the church. And so we find ourselves in this predicament where we have a choice to make. Are we going to continue to do things the way that we do and just hope that culture is going to change? It's not. Or do we begin to have a great awakening in our hearts, a reminder to come back into relationship with God and do the very things that he's called us to do? Matthew 24 says this in verse 12. It says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. 
But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Both the Great Awakening and the Jesus People Movement had something in common. It was a group of people that had become complacent in their relationship with God, and they decided they were going to take it to the streets. That they weren't going to have what we consider to be a modern-day revival, which is honestly just an extended worship service. But that we're actually going to be people who are living their life on mission, who are living their life fulfilling the Great Commission, which is to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? That to, to go into the world and make disciples, to tell people about the good news that you've experienced in your own life. So how do we do that? Well, we need to spread the gospel. That's such a church term. But what is the gospel? The gospel is a good message given by a good messenger. We have the good message. The question is, are we going to be a good messenger? Isaiah, in a prophetic word from God, uh, is giving this message to the Israelites. And he says in Isaiah 52, 7, this is really a prophetic word, but it's a beautiful picture of this. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We can't give the message, the good news to anyone unless we are willing to accept the challenge of being the messenger. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, it says, He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I want to give you four things. And these things have been around for years. They've been in all kinds of books. This is not anything new, and it's not anything that I can claim to have come up with in my own brilliance. But if I were to explain what a good messenger bringing good news looks like, it would be these four things. The first is that we would accept the personal responsibility. That if the world's going to get the good news, it's going to come through people like you and me. That every place we go, Every part of our life circle that, that exists, that we're taking the message of Jesus. And we are responsible for those people. Romans 10 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how they call on him to save them, uh, how will they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never even heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. He quotes the prophetic word from Isaiah. How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? Consider yourself sent. You're being sent by a pastor who loves you, who cares about our culture, who cares about the direction our world and our country is going, we are the sent ones. I'm just asking for you to look for opportunities in a world that's desperately hurting, 
The next step, number two, is to develop a personal relationship. Right? The next step is to, to connect with someone before you correct them. That there should be a relationship. Jesus always gave grace before he gave the truth. Always. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Whatever a person is like, I try to find common ground with him so that he will let me tell him about Christ and let Christ save him. It's from the Living Bible. Build relationships with people. I'm not asking for a bunch of evangelists that are standing on the park bench screaming at people that they need to, to turn their lives around. I'm asking for us to take the responsibility and build relationships with the people who might not ever walk or step foot into this church and to tell them the good message of Jesus. John Maxwell says, I don't have to be like them to reach them, but I do have to like them. Number three, share my personal story. This is where most people miss evangelism because even that word evangelism can cause people to break out into hives, right? Even the, even the greatest Christians on earth, the people who have been walking with the Lord forever, when you start talking about evangelism, they're like, that's a spiritual gift I don't have. Like that's, you know, the, it, it's difficult, and it's difficult because of people like me who stand on a platform and communicate to you the, the message of God's word, and I perpetuate a notion that says, you have to be able to communicate like me in order to bring people to Jesus and to get people saved, and that simply couldn't be further from the truth. It's not. It didn't say for the, uh, for the pastor's the, the vocational pastors of the world, you guys go and make disciples. No, he, he says to all of us to go and make disciples. I think the other area in which this hangs people up is that you just don't feel competent or qualified to tell somebody about Jesus. Because there's so much that you just don't know of Scripture, and there's so much that you don't even know of the Trinity and who God is and and all of these things, and can I just encourage you, don't tell people what you don't know. Tell them what you do know. Tell them how he's changed your life. Tell your story. That, that's all that's being asked here, is that we would be people who are willing to share our personal story, to be vulnerable. I don't know if you heard it today, but uh, Kelly, as she was leading worship and introducing the new song, there was just a moment of vulnerability there where she's saying, you know, like me, I, I find myself getting into the place of works and wanting to perform my way into God's good graces, and that's really not what we've been called to do. There's a moment there of vulnerability that, that was sharing with you. This is how uh, I've, you know, I can fall into that trap, but I can also tell you that that's not who God is. And God is a God who saves us regardless, regardless of our works. All we're saying is can we just be people who are willing to share the story that God's done in our life? What has he done in your life? And if he hasn't done something in your life, then let's have that conversation. Because if you're like me, he's he saved us. He saved us from the punishment that we deserved. I experienced God's grace as a sophomore in college. I experienced his grace in a moment, and I'm not going to go into this whole story of it. 
But in a moment, I'll never forget really understanding the grace of God in my life. And I tell that story, I go into the details of it, I tell that story with people who sit in my office who are struggling with shame and guilt. 1 Peter 3 says, but, you're, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do people even recognize that you have hope? Like when you're going to work or you're going to school and, and you're out with your neighbors and your community, do people see something different in you? Or is what they see in you what they see everywhere else in the culture? There should be some difference in us, and that difference we should be prepared to give an answer for. But do this, of course, with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Be so nice that they don't even know how to receive it. This isn't about us being the judges of the world. This isn't about, uh, there's, I talk to people all the time when they find out I'm a pastor, they're like, I, I, I'm not interested in church. And, and I can get defensive about that, and I can say, well, I'm, I'm leading a church. Or I can ask the question, well, why? What happened? Obviously, something happened to you, and usually they go into judgmentalism and rejection, and they're just not nice people and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go to that church either. I don't. That's why I lead my own church so it doesn't become that way. So, so come to our church and it'll be different, right? At our church, it will be different. Be so nice that they don't, ha- they don't know how to receive it. I, was, uh, I got to play golf on Friday and uh, I got paired up with a couple other guys and uh, inevitably it went around the circle. Oh, what do you do for a living? What do you, I'm a radiologist, I'm this, I'm that. I'm an attorney, I'm, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, he's like, now I got to wash my mouth. And I'm like, I'm a cussing pastor. No, I didn't say that. I said, it's okay. I said, I, I said you should hear my wife's mouth. Uh, no, no, I, I didn't. I didn't say that. But isn't it interesting? I'm going to move us along really quick here. Isn't it interesting that when you just when i just say that i'm a pastor it comes with a whole lot of baggage a whole lot of perception and most of my life i spend trying to debunk the nonsense that's being perpetuated from a platform on tv or whatever that has that has communicated everything except of the good message of jesus and what he's done in my life. Be so nice that they don't even know how to receive it. So peaceful that, that they're like, there's something different about your marriage. There's something different about your children. Like I, like I see your kids and they're, they're good kids and they seem to, to have a, a, a good relationship with you as parents and they're not on their devices all the time. What is going on? Well, you can tell them, you know what? Honestly, 
I felt convicted on, the, uh, on a Sunday at church that maybe I'm not praying over my children as much as I should be. And so now my wife and I are laying hands on our kids and praying for them. I will tell you that that will be a little, I mean, they'll pick their jaw up off the ground. And they'll be like, well, tell me more about that. Let our fruit be the result of our opportunity to share the good message of Jesus with people. And then the fourth thing is you have to give a personal invitation. You have to. And this is where most people clam up and get cold feet. They're willing to even share their story, but, but when it comes to saying, would you like to have the kind of relationship with God that I do? Whew, that's tough. And I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody in the room or anybody watching online, but my guess is, based upon my relationship with people and understanding of where the, the church is today, my guess is the majority of you in the room have either n- not led someone to Christ ever in your life, you've been led to Christ but not led someone else to Christ, or two, it's been a very, very long time. And I say that not out of any sort of shame or, or condemnation or, or anything other than just facing the reality of the current state. A part of the reason our culture looks like it does is because the church has stopped doing what it's supposed to do. We don't have a country anymore who loves Jesus. There might have been a day where things were a little bit different in the culture, where we had some biblical ethics and morals and, and things, but we just that, that's gone. And to be honest, I think we've gotten too consumed with our, our gathering and too consumed with, with the building of our kingdoms in the church and our programming that we've forgotten to equip people to leave and share what they learned here. So I want to help you with that. You were given a handout. It looks like this. This is so simple. It's so simple. But it's so difficult to do. I want you to, to flip to the backside where there's the little drawing. One of our primary goals as a church is to equip you like as, as staff, as leadership of the church, it is our job to equip the saints, is what Scripture says, for the work of the ministry. It doesn't abdicate us from doing ministry. I just want you to hear that. This isn't do as I say, not as I do. This isn't me saying I don't have to do what I'm about to share with you. No, this is all of us together. But as a role, as a leader, it's my job to equip you to do this. And so that's what we're doing. We're equipping you to take the message of Jesus into your life circle. Every one of you has one or more of these things in your life. And really, you have all of them, if we're being honest. You have your home, you have your school, you have your favorite places that you like to go, you have your church, you have your hobbies, you like to play golf or whatever, you have your work, you have your neighbors. See, church is just one part of your life circle, and there's actually more to your life that exists outside of these walls than it does just serving on a dream team here. And if all you ever do is talk about what Jesus has done in your life in these walls, in this part of your life circle right down here at the bottom, 
we are not going to change the culture. We have to bring it into every aspect of our life. So how do you do that? How do you lead someone to Jesus? Well, on the other side of that, you have uh, kind of some steps, if you will. Some steps to help people understand this. And I know that if you were to just go through each one of these steps, like if you were to go up to your coworker and say, let me tell you about Jesus today, that's probably not going to go well. Right? I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. It's going to be a challenge. But when you have a relationship with someone and you have the opportunity, my encouragement would to take these and not prescribe them to how you lead someone to Jesus, but that you would subscribe to them, that you would understand them, that they would be in your heart, that they would, you would even memorize the scriptures. And as you have those divine moments and those opportunities to share with someone about what God's done in your life, you can recall these and remember them as you're communicating to them. And the first is helping people understand simply that God loves them. No matter what they're doing, no matter what they're caught up in, no matter what they have done, that God loves them. And that God also sent his son to pay for our sins. Guilt is a real thing. People have it. Guilt hasn't gone away in the moral decline of our culture. People still experience guilt. They experience shame. And they're looking for a way to absolve that guilt. Unfortunately, they're looking to the world's answers to absolve that guilt or to numb that guilt. But the reality is, is we know, if you are a Christ follower, we know that that guilt can only be absolved through the understanding of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. John 3.16, such an easy verse that we all know, thanks to all of the people behind the backstop of baseball games from the beginning of time. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The second thing we, we help them understand is that God can give you peace no matter the circumstance. And I'm going to tell you, that resonates with people right now. There's anxiety, there's depression, there's anger, there's all of these things that are the opposite of peace. And people are looking for peace. And people are looking for people of peace. If we get as angry as the world, we are not people of peace. We're not accomplishing the mission of God. we got to be people of peace. John 16, I have told you this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The third thing is that God will give you the strength to make it through. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. That no matter what they're going through, no matter what they're experiencing, the death of a spouse or a child, no matter what it is that they're experiencing in depression, in anxiety, in fear, God will get them through it. God is ready to save you right now. Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If you don't know how to lead someone to Jesus and give them the hope and the peace that you experience in your life, at a minimum, you could take them to Romans chapter 10. It's as simple as confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's not then plus this you will be saved, then you will be saved. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. I'm going to tell you this as we close our time. The fields are ripe for the harvest. And I know that's such a churchy thing to say, but usually it's a churchy thing to say to get people to serve on dream teams. That's what they do. They, they use it to get you to serve in the church. And we need people to serve in the church. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just one part of your life. We need people, we need first service, honestly, to help us in serving our kids. And I know I've often said we don't want to just have anybody down there I might change that a little bit, but no, we need people who are willing to be trained to be down there and to serve our kids because honestly, our second service is getting to capacity. You look around here and think that second service is like this. It's not. It's capacity because that's the only service right now we have uh, LifeHouse Kids for all of our families, and so we need, we need help. Serving the church is a good thing. But the fields are ripe for the harvest, not because we expect every one of our, of our life circle to show up into our front doors. It's ripe for the harvest out there. And we're going to have to go out to the fields. And your field is this. Every aspect of this part of your life. And when you go out, our God is looking for a worker to go and reap the harvest that's out there. We need a great awakening. We need a Jesus people movement. We need to be reminded that our relationship is with God, not the church. Let's pray.